So we're approaching the 16th of January. Which every year is an occasion to remember our teacher, Lumpo Cha. It always seems to be uh, a cause for our own faith and confidence to increase when we remember Lumpo Cha. Our faith and confidence in the path of practice, the Eightfold Noble Path, and the possibility that liberation from stress, suffering, and the round of samsara is possible for human beings. Even in this day and age, long time after the time of the Buddha. For those who lived with Lumpur Cha, they found that he was always encouraging them in the practice and giving them skillful means and reflections to help them understand more directly the Four Noble Truths, suffering its origin, its end, and the path that leads to the end of suffering. So as you've heard from people's recollections, it wasn't that it was all always a smooth ride living with Lumpocha. He would be helping to direct people to recognize suffering for what it is and not to be afraid of it or run away from it, but to look at it and learn from it. And even though he's no longer with us, that flavor is still found within his teachings when you listen to them or read them. Sometimes people would look at the monastery with Lumpur Char in it as a kind of grand research lab for human beings <coughs> researching into you know, this problem of suffering and how it arises but using themselves as the focus of the research the object of the experiment but Lumpur Cha would be helping to just tweak things and get, give things a nudge to help them, people in, go in the right direction to understand more how suffering arises. So of course it wasn't that he was deliberately cruel or unkind, quite the opposite. He had great wisdom and from that great compassion. But he would encourage everybody to learn from experience and make everything into a learning experience, even pain, suffering, frustrations that come up in the monastic life. So when we come into a monastery that's in the tradition of Lumpur Cha, it's like coming into a 
research project. And in brief, we're looking very closely at suffering and its causes. Often that's attributed to craving and clinging, or craving and attachment. So we have the Pariyati, the suttas, the Vinaya, and the commentaries, the teachings that we study. And even Lumpur Cha spent the first few years of his life as a monk reading a lot, memorizing the teachings, pondering them. And so we tend to do the same. So if we learn about suffering and its cause, then so you learn about craving. <clears throat> There's three kinds of craving the Buddha pointed out. Craving for sensuality or sensual desire. Craving to become, craving not to become. And craving is the direct cause of clinging or attachment or upadana. Four kinds of upadana. Gama Upadana, so again the attachment to sense desire, sense objects. Ditti Upadana, the attachment to views, beliefs, opinions. Silapata Upadana, the attachment to practices, techniques, cultural habits, and so on. And then Atavadupatana, the attachment to the sense of self, the idea of self, the notion of self, that there is there's a me in there, in the middle of all our experience, some kind of me, I, that is owning things and controlling things. So this is based on the the Buddha's explanation of how suffering arises. We have feeling arising with our sense experience. We see things, pleasant things, unpleasant things, gives rise to feeling, pleasure or pain of different intensities, which gives rise to craving, which gives rise to attachment, which gives rise to becoming or existence. The way we are, the way we feel, the way we we are in our life. And this is the cause for birth, more birth, future birth in the next life. This process is going on every day. It's not like happening just once and then you wait for the next life. It's taking place all through our day. Sense contact, giving rise to feeling, craving, clinging, becoming, birth. Birth is always followed by aging, sickness and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair, as we chant every day. And this is our <clears throat> framework for study, for research. And we learn it first by reading and listening. But then most people find after a while it's not enough simply to intellectually understand the ideas and the descriptions of suffering, how it arises, and we actually have to start applying that to our own experience. So this is where we become part of the 
research project or the, ex the big experiment in the monastery. Of course, everybody's individual experience of suffering, clinging, attachment will vary because of our different karma, our different personalities, our different past. But there'll obviously be very uh, many themes and common experiences we all have from time to time. So the teachings help us because there are many things we can describe that apply to all of us. This is why we have this framework that we can use to learn from. So some people come into the monastery and stay just for a brief period of time. So it's like they join the research project and maybe find out a little bit about themselves, where their stress is, where it comes from, the attachments that underlie the, their experience. But then if they leave, then maybe they don't really complete the research task. So their conclusions, their understanding may be fairly limited. But the longer we stay in the monastery, the more opportunity we have to learn from our experience and really penetrate into this process of suffering, how it arises, and then understand what we have to do to end it. So you'll notice when you come into the monastery, you know, these different forms of upadana, clinging, attachment, are immediately challenged. And uh, you can often see a lot of suffering and stress arise quite quickly because our former habits where we followed craving and attachment took them for granted and acted upon craving and attachment is now challenged in their various areas. So first of all in our sila, we take on the vinaya which is very refined and requires a lot of mindfulness, commitment and streamlining streamlining of our behavior. We have to renounce, we have to have the quality of nekama, renounce, renouncing some of our previous behavior and comforts. <coughs> Mostly of the material comforts that we had as lay people and uh, sometimes physical relationships with others and some of the different habits we've had, when you come into the monastery, they're immediately blocked. There's no outlet for them. So that's often the first suffering we experience in a monastery where our attachment is challenged. You can't always get what you want. You don't get the food you necessarily like, or you're not always with the people you like. You come into a monastery, there's a variety of people who are not were not before you came here, were not your friends or relatives, perhaps. So material things, relationships, the environment. The monastery is in the forest. It's a lot different from living in the city. There's less conveniences. There's more challenges of weather and creatures and uh, challenges of simplicity and so on. All of this is exposing some of that gama upadana, 
an attachment to sensuality very quickly. We don't have so many distractions, entertainments, different things we can uh, escape into when we do have a bit of stress. There's not so many opportunities for that. So you start to see the first kind of upadana at work. Something you want and you can't get it, or you can't keep it, or you can't get it again. You see that with requisites. Sometimes you get a kind of requisite that you were after, but then it runs out or finishes, and you're not sure whether you'll get it back again. So even as a monk, you can get caught into, say, consumerism and getting used to having certain things your, your way. And then you can see the stress, the suffering when you don't get what you want. And most of the time it's fairly minor and you might not have great <clears throat> a great sense of stress, but sometimes all our attachment comes down to very f- a f- few simple things. Getting the food you want. <clears throat> sometimes people can get very angry just because a certain kind of food they want, was they were deprived of it because... Someone else took it. Or you might have a, you start to have a, a wish for something and you just can't get it. So you just keep becoming obsessed with it, just getting a certain kind of drink or food. Often people who have been into music before they come into the monastery find that they have lots of imagination and memories of music, but there's no outlet for it in the monastery. So. They have songs and tunes going around their head for maybe many months or years even. So often this is the first and most obvious kind of stress. Depends what your character's like. Some people are very particular about material objects, taste, sight, smells, touch. They have their attachments that will come out sometimes even humorously. Like in Thailand, I remember there was one monk who would only eat one brand of whitener for his tea or coffee. So even though in those days there wasn't much coffee whitener around, but people were kind enough to try and get it for the monks. But then he couldn't get the brand he liked. So he'd always turn his nose up at what was offered. And then one day he heard another monk had been offered the brand that he liked, but that monk didn't want to share, so in the middle of the night he crept up and replaced the jar that was holding the brand he liked with, emptied the contents into a container and then replaced it with a inferior brand. Unfortunately, the first monk who was, had the, the desired brand was very sharp and noticed what had happened. People's gama upadana can go to that extent. Just becoming obsessed with getting something that you like, having some comfort, all the things you want. And it will come out in this sense of self. You know, a lot of our sense of self comes out in our through our senses, what we like and what we don't like. We remember that. We remember our perceptions and our memories build up over what we like, what we don't like. And they help to form views and opinions in a second kind of upadana, which makes up this sense of self that we attach to. 
you know, we have all kinds of opinions what we think is right and wrong <clears throat> often to do with our own personal comfort and our own personal goals and ambitions and then spreading out into what we think is right Dhamma practice, the right way to meditate what is the right way to practice the Dhamma views on the rules that we keep and then it can spread out further in rules, uh, views and opinions on the world as a whole, politics, the environment, society, people. They're very much linked to Gama Upadana, but helping Gama Upadana helps to solidify various views and opinions which we hold, or beliefs that we hold. So it can be very refined beliefs about you know, the nature of the universe, the nature of life, what is right and wrong, good and bad, whether there's rebirth or not, or more mundane kind of views, just you know, what is the best kuti in the monastery or the best way to do things, the best way to run the monastery, whether we should have more meetings or less meetings and so on. Views and opinions form and they get clung to with the sense of self. So you notice again, Lumpur Cha used to say when monks come into the monastery, attachment to views and opinions with a strong sense of self, giving too much importance to them, is a big source of suffering. And then we sometimes find ourselves clashing with others over the, our opinions about the right way to practice what's right and wrong, the right way to practice a certain Vinaya rule, the right way to meditate, and so on. And as Lumpur Cha used to say, it's not wrong to have an opinion or a view, but it's that clinging to it tightly. It's where the sense of self forms. And often that's where we get into conflict with others who may have their own opinion, and they, if they cling tightly to theirs, we cling tightly to ours, then there can be some friction. Sometimes, it's, again, it can be quite humorous. It's that story of Lumpur Tongrat when he was one of the, the senior monks assisting Lumpur Man to look after the Sangha, which was a very large Sangha, many monks. And there were two monks who studied a lot, read a lot, and perhaps didn't meditate as much as they could have. So they're very good at attaching to their opinions and views about the Dhamma, and they'd always argue he was getting weary of them always arguing. And one day he heard the two monks arguing about a point of Dhamma in the forest. And they're kind of squatting down, talking to each other, but with raised voices loudly arguing about something. So he walked up to them and uh, kind of squat, squatted down with them, listening to their argument for a while. And then he did a poo and walked away. He didn't say anything, he just left his kind of opinion, his own opinion of, of their discussion. And I think they got the point. You know, if we, even a high point of Dhamma, you know, the teaching of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Vinaya, which is normally something we respect and hold up as high, but if we attach to it with too much self and a strong opinion, it becomes something very low, very coarse.
can even lead us to into arguments, bad feeling, resentments and so on. So that was just his way of pointing out to them where they were going wrong. We tend to form views around practices and training rules and techniques of meditation as well. So Siddhapata Upadana, the attachment, often referred to as the blind attachment to certain practices. So not using the Dhamma and the Vinaya as a, as a tool, a useful tool to get us towards Nibbana, but just clinging blindly again so it becomes a cause of suffering. So maybe you have a particular meditation technique that's worked for you, but that you may, if you t- attach too tightly to that technique, then somebody with a different technique, you might immediately assume that they're wrong or be suspicious that they're not practicing correctly, so it might lead you to look down on them or argue with them that their technique is not the right technique, yours is. Obviously we base our practice on the suttas and the Vinaya and the Eightfold Noble Path, but within that there's still plenty of scope for blindly attaching or grasping wrongly at a view about the practice. You might think, well, as long as I keep the Vinaya perfectly, I'll reach Nibbana. But we still have to reflect more deeply on the sense of self that may come up, and it can even come up around our practice of the Vinaya. Or similarly with a meditation technique, which may be correct, but if we attach too tightly, it can also become a cause of suffering. So we have to investigate... Again, like investigating our views, investigate the sense of self and the blindness that we can attach to various practices, things we think of as correct, that we identify with as a sense of self, with a sense of self. Can be beliefs, even superstitious beliefs, not grounded on reality or evidence. Can be views on the way of practice, that we have never really questioned for ourselves. We just gradually form the view and then just stick to it, stick with it. And sometimes you see people, they get caught into a certain view about you know, whether we should practice samatha or vipassana. So you get those who say, well, we have to practice samatha first develop mindfulness on a meditation object until we attain samadhi and then we can contemplate, develop vipassana. Others say we must practice vipassana straight away. We only need a little bit of samadhi, kanika samadhi. Both of those may be right, those views for different practitioners, but it's when you attach, grasp, grasp at the view tightly, that you may cut yourself, cut off your your mind from seeing something from a different angle. And you might invest a strong sense of self in your view, your technique, to the point where it darkens your mind or you covers over your mind. And you're not seeing through through the attachment how it's formed. 
The last one, which links to all th- of the first three, is Atawadu Patama, a sense of self. Just the idea of self, the belief, the view, and the feeling that there is a self behind our experience. This is reinforced since the day we're born. From the day we're born, we're given a name, people relate to us as a person, as a self, and we start thinking about ourself. Once we've got language, we formulate our views and opinions and our thoughts. Some of those thoughts are skillful, some are not. Some are based on wisdom, some on greed, anger, delusion. But it's this just sense of self. Often it's fed by a sense of continuity. I am experiencing, I'm knowing, I'm thinking, I'm feeling, I'm going here, I'm going there, I'm doing things. That sense of I is kind of held together by a continuity. Which is why practice of mindfulness is so useful for just breaking up the sense of self as it forms repeatedly through the day, bringing the mind back to the present moment because the self is fed by endless mental proliferation and grasping onto the idea of self and the feeling this is me, this is mine, this belongs to me. And then the will, wishing to do things, wanting to do things. Even as we practice, you know, some people want to get rid of the sense of self but just wanting to get rid of it. Just an act of will is how I should have no attachment. May my attachment be gone. But we can't do it just as an act of will, just because we, we've been so used to doing things by an act of will, we don't realize that's actually increasing the sense of self, the attachment. What we have to do is develop the tools, the mindfulness, the investigation of truth, to have a little to look a little bit more closely. So mindfulness helps to break things up, interrupt the, the continuity of the sense of self. So we start to notice individual thoughts, individual feelings. Our sense consciousness is changing from seeing to hearing, tasting. So we start to become more familiar with the anicca, the changing nature of experience, which helps to modify our view rather than seeing everything in terms of a solid self, unchanging self. You're seeing more the the process of things. This quality that when there's unknowing or ignorance in the mind, this is what allows attachment clinging to come up. We use the Dhamma practice to help show us or expose this as a delusion and as a cause of suffering. So obviously our aim is to end our experience of stress and suffering, both temporarily and permanently for the for the long term. We need to use the Dhamma practice to, to get to that point. So as even the Dhamma, as I've been mentioning, you know, the Dhamma practice, the, the Vinaya, the Dhamma techniques that we use can become a basis for attachment. So how do we find the balance where you, you use the Dhamma, you use the Vinaya, but you're not clinging so tightly that it becomes a cause of suffering? So Ajahn Chah used to say what it's like, 
going into a dark room. The dark room is the dark room of your mind that's still conditioned by ignorance, craving and attachment and therefore suffers. You take into the dark room with you a torch and you need to cling to the torch, you hold the torch. But as you go in the dark room, you're shining the torch so you can start to see what's in there. You know, the torch is the, the qualities of mindfulness, clear comprehension, investigation of the Dhamma, wisdom. So you need the torch, but you don't sit, cling so tightly that it becomes an end in itself. It's just a tool that we use to shine in there, to see through the darkness. So we use all the, the aspects, all the factors of the path, like the torch. We hold on to them, but we don't cling so tightly that they become suffering, another cause of suffering. That's a skill that we need to learn, you know, when to, when to hold on, when to let go, how tightly we hold on. All the different forms of upadana that I've been mentioning, they all together form this sense of self. In brief, it's a sense of self based around the candors, the body, the mind, five focuses of identity. It's this self-identification with the body, feelings, perceptions, thought formations, sense consciousness. Another way Ajahn Chah used to describe it is like, it's, as long as we've been going through our life without much mindfulness, still conditioned by ignorance, craving, attachment, then this sense of self is a bit like a screw that you're tightening all the time, turning it every moment that mindfulness is gone, and ignorance and clinging attachment takes over the mind. It's like another turn of the screw so the sense of self is forever tightening, hardening, getting stuck down into whatever you're screwing that screw into. And the action of the Dhamma is to do the opposite. It's like turning the screw back again, releasing it. Every moment of mindfulness, every moment of clarity and investigation of, of your own attachment is like un, unwinding, un, <coughs> releasing that screw. And if you've ever done any woodwork or kind of maintenance jobs, <coughs> you'll know when you unscrew something, you have to get the pressure just right. <coughs> if you push down too tightly, If you push down too tightly, the screw won't move because you're pr putting too much pressure on it. It's like grasping the Dhamma, the Vinaya, too tightly. It won't do the job that you want. It won't release the sense of self, giving you a sense of peace and ease of mind. You actually can, the Dhamma, the Vinaya can become painful. But then if you don't press down on the screw enough, then you can't move it either, you won't release. So you have to find the right pressure where you're just pushing, putting the head of the screwdriver, say, on the screw, and you're just 
untightening it in the right way with the right amount of pressure. That's the skill we're learning in all aspects of the practice, whether it's the sila, practice of mindfulness, practice of insight. And we have to get the mind to the point where it's just right. In the use of our requisites, we get to the point where it's just right. You know, enough. You have enough requisites that you can do the job. You can live as a monk. You're not so pressured or stressed that you don't have enough food or you're too exposed to the elements, the weather. You've got enough to get by, but you're not becoming obsessed or indulgent with them. You find the right amount, you know, the right amount to eat, the right amount to sleep, the right amount in personal belongings, and so on. And when you meditate, you're meditating on the breath. You have to find that point where it's just the right amount. You're not trying too hard, forcing it with a lot of willpower. But then you're not so relaxed that you just let your mind go and just endlessly call into proliferation and different moods. And then insight. You have to find the right amount where you bring up the reflection on the three characteristics. You apply it to your experience, see the impermanence, see the dukkha, see the lack of self, lack of control, lack of ownership in your experience. You have to apply wisdom just the right amount. Sometimes people become wisdom heavy. They don't have enough faith, they don't brighten their mind with faith, and they don't practice samatha, so they don't calm the mind. So they don't have much of a sense of well-being, they just have a lot of intellectual knowledge which can bear down, press down on the mind, and then they become easily become critical of the world around them, or very negative about themselves, or very depressed, and then they don't get progress. Or some people are too loose. You know, they they have lots of faith, and they have quite a lot of joy from you know, practicing the Dhamma, but they never contemplate. They never look more deeply into their experience and see the sense of self. Because whatever good results we get from the practice, well, the sense of self can still form back around that. You know, it can still be, we can still enjoy the practice, but then attached to the enjoyment. We can have feelings of bliss and pleasure from meditation, but then attached to that. Even the sense, I know, I have insight, I know, I understand the Dhamma, I penetrate the Dhamma. Well, still, the sense of self will form around that. So finding the right amount, the right balance, or what is the right, just the right amount in the practice, you know, something that comes through experience. But when you have the, the feeling it's just enough, just right, then you're at ease. You're not causing yourself excess suffering in your efforts. You know, if you have any pain or suffering, it's just the normal suffering of the body and mind as you practice, but you're not creating excess or additional suffering. But you're not too loose either. You're not giving up on the Vinaya and letting it all go. You're not giving up on the meditation, just letting your mind just dwell in worldly thoughts all the time or seeking distraction all the time. You have to find the balance just enough where you keep practicing, but you're not pushing so hard that you become miserable. You're not so loose that you can never feel good about what you're doing. And that's part of our skill.
So it's a subject Lumpo Chao would come back to over and over again, looking at suffering, its causes, looking at clinging, and with this sense of learning to be more equanimous <coughs> with your own experience, you know, your own experience, your own mind, how you think, how you feel about things, bring out more mindfulness, more wisdom, so you can just be at peace, equanimous with your own personality, your own karma, your own body, your own mind. That might be a kind of a a goal that we can all achieve, just to be at, learn to be at peace with ourselves, day by day, through our practice. If you can achieve that, then you know that's, you're already halfway on the way to nibbana. When we forget that, we, we lose the equanimity. We get caught back into our moods. Then we always go create dramas, attachment, clinging, leads to dramas and mental dramas, ups and downs. Sadness, happiness, anger, aversion, frustrations, and so on. And we start to go back into the soap operas of the mind and create all kinds of extra additional stuff. You notice when mindfulness is there, and we put effort into bringing up mindfulness, even if you're having some pain in the body or some difficult life experiences going on, we can cope with it. When you lose your mindfulness, it overwhelms you. You see that with illness. We all get ill, have pains, aches, illnesses from time to time. If you establish mindfulness, look at it using the three characteristics. Well, it's just, just what it is. Some pain, some discomfort. And you don't take ownership of it. You, you witness it, but you don't take ownership of it and get all caught up in it. But when there's not much mindfulness or you don't make it part of the practice, then you just react with aversion. You say, I don't want to be ill, feel sorry for yourself, or feel angry or upset or distracted. And the same with anything, you know, the experiences we have, if we make them part of our practice, bring up the mindfulness, investigate, see where we can loosen this attachment that's forming, that's the way to find peace. It doesn't mean to say you'll never have any problems. You still have some problems, some difficulties, but you make them part of the practice. So I'll uh, leave you with these reflections tonight. We can do uh, some more meditation and then we'll do some chanting.